too soon. Too soon. It's not. It's too soon. <laughs> too soon. Welcome. Premature. Premature. Oh, sorry. <laughs> hey, when that happens. Hey, that. <laughs> welcome back to Gotham, Bougie. Is it welcome back? Our welcome back. Yeah, I mean they were here last week, and then yeah, we that's born. true. Welcome. Welcome back, Jumbo. Hello. Welcome to episode. 35. 35. No. Yes, yes, 35. We are officially in our dirty 30s. Dirty like, 30s. In it. In it. In it good. <laughs> in it. In it balls deep. <laughs> balls deep. Balls in the dirty 30s. deep, baby. Yep. Oh, so episode 35. It's Bell's serial killer. It is my serial killer, and it's a good one. Oh. It's, it's, he's in Dallas. In Dallas? Yes. Oh, no. And, and it's, it's kind of long, so we might need to get started kind of early, and we don't... I don't really have any updates. I don't have any updates, but I do have a follow-up <coughs> for our anonymous stories. Oh, yes. I told was, you guys that we I want to tell this. you about... This was the story about the demonic so, possession witnessed yes, in the hospital that, room. our listener's story. So, we, had, we asked him. I said, Belle wants to know more about what happened and mm-hmm. what was said during the possession. LOL, like with a little emoji, like, you know? Yeah, tell us. So the priest actually recited a lot of prayers, some in Latin and some in English. Not sure why. She got extremely rigid, almost like her entire body cramped up. He's trying to be all inclusive in multiple languages. (laughs) At times, it was seizure-like. There was a lot of screaming. I do remember the room getting extremely hot, almost like the AC went out for days. Hmm. In the end, she looked like like she had done a marathon. I guess. In the end, she looked like she'd done a marathon from hell, but had obviously no recollection of what happened up to that point. Her family said that they'd been dealing with this for almost two years. They tried medical first, thinking it was psych, and then when um, that didn't work, they turned to the church. The church took a long time, I guess, the legality of it and making sure it wasn't Yeah, I remember when we talked about right. that on our last episode about demonic possession, that there's a lot of permissions that have to be done before yeah. a priest can come in and do it under the authority of the Catholic Church. Church. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he said it was the most intense two hours I had ever been with a patient. There was a lot of things she said or it said that I still find... Um, that bother me. The priest had to bless us before and after the ritual. Yeah, to make sure it didn't jump from her yeah. to you. And that's all he said. Oh, creepy. How about that? How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Damn, that's good. Good stuff. Catch me outside. How about that? Good content. <laughs> <laughs> good content. That's all. Interesting. So, um, yes, our my story this week is serial killer. And did you know there are over 250,000 unsolved murders since the 1980s? You don't say. I know. You've never heard that before, have you? I haven't. Ever. And that the FBI estimates there are anywhere between 25 and 50 serial killers active at any given time in the U.S. Mm. That's just the U.S. too. (laughs) That's creepy. And I haven't really covered very many U.S. serial killers. Mine seem to be... Germany. Uh, yeah, other countries, right. <clears throat> and that most likely you have probably passed a murderer sometime in your life. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. There's some people I look at, I'm like, mm, yeah, I could probably see him like wearing a woman's suit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Maybe one of us are serial killers. Hmm. No. I don't want to get dirty. <laughs> yeah, that's dirty. It is a lot of work. We read about this shit, and I'm like, God, it's so much work. And it is a lot of work. I don't want to get into that much. I'm not that committed to no anything. Thanks. No thanks. 
Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. So my story is, it happened here in Dallas. And my serial killer is Charles Albright. He's also another one that is just on the verge of the true definition of serial killer mm-hmm. because it was only three women that they are pretty sure that he killed. Only three. Um, I mean. Yeah, only three. And the definition is like three or more. He was only convicted of one, but the other two were the exact same thing. And they, they just only, a lot of times they only try one of the murders right. and they, they they get a conviction on that and, and a lot of times they do that so that if they do get uh, acquitted on the first one they still have the other ones in their back pocket right or if they get a life sentence on that mm-hmm. one they can hopefully get the death penalty on yes, one of the yes exactly yeah. exactly um so charles albright was born august 10th 1933 in amarillo texas and when he was three weeks old, Charles was adopted by Del Albright, who was a school teacher, and her husband, Fred, who was a Dallas grocer. And hold on, let me spit out my gum. Fred. Fred. Sorry. The Albrights lived in the, at that time, all-white middle-class neighborhood of Oak Cliff. It was a beautiful residential area across the river from downtown. According to the Trinity River bodies are found all the time. Yeah, this was 1933. <laughs> um, yeah. According to the story Dell would later tell Charles, his birth mother was an exceptional law student. She was just 16 years old who had secretly married another student and had become pregnant. When the girl's father found out, he demanded that she annul her marriage and give the baby up for adoption. Otherwise, he would cut her off from the family. Mm. So that's the story that Dell told Charles about his adoption and his birth parents. That's the story anyway. So, Dale Albright made sure that Charles knew that she would never abandon him. She pampered him. She kept goats in the backyard so she could give him goat's milk to drink, which she said was better for him than cow's milk. But sometimes her mothering went to the extremes. Uh When he was a small child, she occasionally would put him in little girl's dresses and give him a doll to hold. (laughs) I don't think that's necessarily... I mean, did he say that he wants to be a girl? Like, usually when that happens... they kids. may have like, said something like, "I feel yeah, like I'm a girl. like I feel like I'm a girl. I don't I don't feel like I'm a boy. I feel like I should wear." No, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like, it doesn't say that at all. Just that she would dress him in girls' dresses and give him a doll. But so may, she I mean, was choosing to dress him because she wanted a girl. I'm not sure. That's not clear in the story that I was able to find okay. out. It just said that that's, that's what it that sounds she like would to do. Me. Yeah. But then again, you know, if I had a son, you know, my sister, I don't have sons, but my sister, her sons, they want to wear a ponytail. When I was working with children, we, we put a ponytail in the hair. Right. They wanted to paint their nails, we painted their nails. It was like to, so that they understand that it's okay. Yeah, we painted um, David's nails when yeah, he was Yeah, yeah, so the, the, the gender stereotypes are not this toxic, toxic masculinity right. that is so often perpetuated. Anyway, um, afraid that he might touch dog poo and get polio, she took him to the parklands. So that she was afraid that he might touch dog poo and actually get polio. She took him to Parkland Hospital. I know, I know, right? That's crazy. Wait a minute. She took him to Parkland so that he could see the polio patients locked in their huge iron lungs. And she would say to him, Be careful or you may have to spend the rest of your life here. So, um, wow. Yeah, that's so that was her scare tactic. Yeah, yeah. Don't touch dog don't poo. Back, don't touch dog poo. Just make it polio and then you that that's fucked up. When he was less than a year old, she put him in a dark room as punishment for chewing on her tape measure. When he wouldn't take a nap, she would tie him to his bed. What when the he heck? wouldn't drink his milk, she would spank him. So indeed she the people tied him to yeah, the bed. Yeah, when he wouldn't take a nap. 
So the people around the neighborhood talked about her, that, you know, she was odd, she was grim-natured, but no one could ever remember her buying anything for herself. She was almost, like, self-depriving. She would always do stuff for, for him, but she not for herself. She can't afford it because she was buying fucking ropes time to the goddamn right? bed. Um, so she never bought herself anything new, never bought herself a new dress. She kept a scarf over her head and wore clothes from Goodwill. Although she and Fred were far from poor, she usually scrimped at mealtimes, even picking up the old bones from the local butcher that he threw away for the dogs. She would use them, she would say, for soup or stock. So, not that Charles ever openly complained. He would always be appreciative of his mother and what she taught him. Um, she taught him manners. She told him, you know, he should speak politely about other people or say nothing at all. She told him to respect women, especially when it came to sex. She lectured him about the way his father acted greedy with sex. Whenever Fred saw her in the bedroom in her bra and panties and tried to grab her, she was going to have none of that, and she made sure Charles never tried anything like that with his girlfriends either. So as he grew older, she insisted on chauffeuring him every time he was on a date. She would even call the girl's parents to let them know that her son would not do anything untoward. Not necessarily. That's a little extra. Well, this was... The 40s. Oh, so yeah, it was not unusual. For yeah, so you figure... Courted, when he was that's a courted girl Yes, then. yeah, 40s and 50s. So she would call the parents, make sure they knew that everything right. was okay. He was a, a good boy, raised in a good home. She also introduced Charles... Much about the good home part. Yeah, I know. Okay. ...to the world of taxidermy. When he was 11 years old, she enrolled him in a mail order course, the Northwestern School of Taxidermy, and it was taught by Professor J.W. Elwood. And he said, in his pamphlets that he sent out, You are beginning to learn an art that is second only to painting and sculpturing. Oh. A true taxidermist must be an artist. So as Charles set to work on the dead birds that he would find, Dell was right behind, beside him. She showed him how to use all the tools, the knife used <clears throat> to cut the skull, the little spoon used to scoop out the brains, the scalpel required to cut away the eyes from their sockets, and the forceps that pulled out the eyes. She even skinned the bird first for him, teaching him not to cut too deep. So dutifully, Charles would spend hours on his taxidermy courses. He would stuff, he would mount his birds, making them look as lifelike as possible, and he was really good. Then he would get to the point of the eyes. He used to go to the taxidermy shop and stare at the boxes and boxes full of gloriously fake eyes. Owl eyes, eagle eyes, all the kind of eyes. He loved their iridescent gleam and how they looked alive. He wished he could collect them the way other boys collected marbles. He just was fascinated with the with gleam eyeballs. of the eye. But Dell wouldn't let him. She said they were too expensive. And instead, she said, where's a better way? We don't have to use those. She would instead use buttons for the eyes. People who visited, and then they would put them in the oak china cabinet in front of the house. And people who visited would say that they were indeed his finest works of art. Like it was, the, you would peer into the cabinet and see this beautiful bird, beautiful feathers, but then a button sewn on its eyes. And it's very dull and lifeless. So, and he didn't like that. He didn't like that. He wanted lifelike. He wanted lifelike eyes. Because he worked hard and it looks perfect. Yes. So he was known as the most good-natured, eager to please of children. He was a precocious boy who would do just about anything. He could name all the constellations in the sky. He'd catch catch snakes without getting bitten. What the fuck? <laughs> he would go catch goddamn snakes. This whole story about him, all people people just thought he was just 
fucking saint. He's fucking insane right now, I can tell you, trying to catch fucking right? snakes. He would even perform a tap, tap dance routine on stage for the famous Texas theater. Charlie was like a Pied Piper to the rest of us kids, and a childhood friend would say. We always wanted to see what he would do, do next. He was just so much damn fun. Texas theater's still open. Oh, really? Yeah, they have burlesque shows there. Oh, we have to go see one. He was considered a very bright boy in Dallas. He graduated from Adamson High School at 15. His mother, actually because she was a teacher, she accelerated his courses. And he was something of a celebrity. When Charlie was 14, <laughs> Dell and Fred purchased a piece of property in their neighborhood and gave it to him. He sold it to buy more lots, and the Dallas Times-Herald published a story about him under the headline, World's Youngest Real Estate Man Amassing Nest Egg for College. Mm. Yeah, Dallas Times-Herald. Remember that newspaper? Yes, I love now it. it's Dallas Morning News. Mm-hmm. Yet Charlie's love for mischief had tainted his reputation. He had received bad grades in school for shooting rubber bands <clears throat> and crawling out of study hall. So even though on one hand he was really charming and a really great, on the other hand he was really mischievous. He's like one of those well, badass kids. Boy. Yes, and you know I see there's these badass kids out there at the uh, the um, RV park that we're at, and to your face you're like, yes ma'am, yes sir, but then you see them like fucking climb the tree and don't rocks the birds. You're like badass fucking kid. <clears throat> he flunked out. Oh, wait. He got in trouble at school for shooting rubber bands and crawling out of study hall. How, how do you crawl out of study hall? Like, I guess he just got down and crawled out. You can't see me. You can't see me. I'm crawling. He you accident, can't see me. He accidentally set fire to his chemistry teacher's dress. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Accidentally is in quotes because they don't know if it was an accident or not. He flunked out of a... <laughs> I'm on fire. I'm on fire. I'm on fire. <laughs> I just think of Ricky Bobby running around. I'm on fire. fire. <laughs> he flunked a few courses because he was too bored to study. And, of course, if his mother found out, he wouldn't hear the end of it. So he snuck into the school office, stole some report cards from a desk, filled them in with all A's, <laughs> and proudly showed them to his parents with the teachers and the principal's signatures perfectly forged. <laughs> this guy, man, he's a, he's a trip. There was also the time that he was caught breaking into the neighborhood church. Then there was the time that he was caught breaking into a little store and stealing a watch. Alfred Jones, a 20-year-old psychology student working part-time as a Dallas County juvenile probation officer, was assigned to him as a probation officer because of these things. Forty years later, he remembered Charles Albright most clearly from all the other juveniles that he had assigned to him back in the 40s. He said... Charles could divorce reality reality sufficiently from his value system so that he could tell you something false and at that time actually believe he was telling you the truth. Wow. Definitely a psychopath. Yes. Um, One of his relatives said that maybe he stole things because his mother was so stingy or maybe he just wanted to be rebellious. Del Albright did whatever she could to keep a close eye on her son. She took him to the Methodist church every Sunday. She made him go to bed, even when he was in his teens, at 8 o'clock every night. And whenever she chauffeured him on a date, she watched him so closely that he would joke about the way she drove with her eyes on the rearview mirror. But still, Charlie loved his mother. That much was clear. But there were little things that sometimes bothered him. He was never certain, for example that his biological mother had been the brilliant student that she said she was. So he hated, no, sorry, that she claimed that she was. He also hated her cooking so much that he would stuff his food on a ledge under the table or give it to his dog. (laughs) She fussed over him so regularly that he began to get headaches. 
and then she decided the headaches were from bad eyesight and promptly made him wear glasses even though he didn't need them. <laughs> I know, right? This Bitch, is... put on these glasses. You don't need them, but put them on. Right after high school, he enrolled in North Texas State College in Denton. Oh, so that's yeah. Tina? Mm-hmm. By the end of his freshman year, he was arrested for being a member of a student burglary ring that broke into three stores and stole several hundred dollars worth of merchandise. He swore he stole nothing and that he was... I wonder what they stole. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he swore he didn't steal anything and he was just holding on to the stuff for his friends. No, that's not mine. I'm just holding on to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. His mom even went to the store owners and tried to reimburse them for what he was he had taken because she didn't want him to get in trouble. She's trying to keep you know him from getting a record. She's she, a helicopter yeah. mom. Yes, she tried to persuade the judge to let her act as his lawyer. She even <laughs> she I know this woman. She even asked that she take his place in prison. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry, I ain't doing that. No. I will help my child hide the body, but I am not taking their place in prison. But he still went to prison for a year, and he spent his 18th birthday there. Meanwhile, his mom worked hard to keep the matter hush-hush so that no one in her neighborhood knew that he had become a convicted felon. So when he got out of jail, he transferred to Arkansas State Teachers College. It was Charlie's chance for a new start. As he told the probation officer he was going to mend his ways, he began to date a lovely young English major, Betty Hester, and made plans to marry her. He did brilliant work in science. I mean, he's really smart, although he hardly studied. He made an A in his human anatomy course. Of course he did. And it was said around school that he was going to go far. He even talked about going to medical school and becoming a surgeon. Oh, because he knows how to do taxidermy. Yeah. But it didn't take long for him to become one of the school's most popular students. Not but, sorry. It didn't. So because of all this, it didn't take long for him to become very popular on campus. He was remarkably well-rounded. He was president of the French Club, business manager of the yearbook, member of the school choir, halfback on the football team. When he signed up for a drawing course, the art professor was so impressed with his good looks that they made him the class model. Yeah. Interesting. But he wasn't known as just a goody two-shoes. He was the all-American fraternity boy. Badass kid. He was a great college prankster. One time, he snuck into the home economics building, got a load of food out of the refrigerator, and cooked a state dinner for his friends. (laughs) (laughs) Another time on a dare, he broke into a physics professor's office in the middle of the day, picked the lock on the closet, stole what was known around school as the unstealable physics test, Race downtown to make a copy of it. Can you imagine having to go downtown to make a copy of something back in the day? I can't. And had the test back in its place within the hour. The professor who was teaching class next door never suspected a thing. Hmm. But he also never stopped playing the role of a class clown. Of all his greatest pranks, no one would forget the one he played on his friend, Andrew. In a fit of anger, Andrew had broken up with the most beautiful girl on campus, a woman with almond-shaped eyes. After the separation, he tore up several photographs of her and threw them in the trash can in his dorm room. Weeks later, he got a new girlfriend and asked her for a photo. One night, while Andrew was staring at his new girlfriend's picture, he realized that something was wrong. He looked closer. It seemed that her eyeballs had been cut out and replaced with the eyeballs of his old girlfriend. What the fuck? (laughs) 
in disbelief, Andrew looked up the ceiling, and there staring down at him was another pair of his old girlfriend's eyeballs. Like, he had cut the freaking pictures that he had thrown away. All the eyeballs. Charles did. Cut all the eyes out and put them everywhere. There was even some above the urinal in the men's bathroom down the hall. (laughs) I see you. No matter where Andrew turned, he was confronted by the sight of his old girlfriend's eyes. It's like that picture of a the the picture that people put around of um what's his I can't I can't think on what's his name uh da, 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 da. he was in Con Air the main character Nicholas Cage Nicholas Cage you know what I'm talking about like they yes. cut out that Nicholas Cage picture and they put it around in random places yes so the story soon raced to the school that he had pulled the old photographs out of the trash and saved her eyeballs for just the right moment. <laughs> None of his friends found it strange. They just said it was pure Charlie. Who else could have done something so inventive? That's funny shit. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's funny. <laughs> so then, skip forward to Charles Albright was now 36. It's definitely crazy, but it's yes. funny. And he began teaching high school science oh. in Crandall, a small town east of Dallas. Mm-hmm. The principal at Crandall, who had been looking for a teacher the entire summer, was ecstatic when the astute young man called him up right before the school year began. And according to college records, <clears throat> Charles Albright had a master's degree in biology from East Texas State University and was working on another master's in counseling and guidance. Oh. He was also about to enter East Texas State ETSU's PhD program mm-hmm. in biology. So this principal's like, amazing, yes, you're hired on the spot, bam. He's bouncing around everywhere in Texas. Yes. Albright students found him fascinating. Uh, again, he's just this awesome guy that everyone fell in love with. Mm-hmm. On field trips, he could recite in flawless Latin the scientific name for every plant he came across. Oh. He could split open a rotted log and talk about each insect. He drove a green Corvette to school and wore lizard skin shoes. Mm. I know, right? He was, he was dapper. He was pimping. Yeah. <laughs> a few girls, smitten by his charm and masculine looks, wrote him love letters. He even helped coach the football team. Then, during his career as a teacher, the East Texas State University administrator realized that he had never met this Charles Albright, whose name kept popping up on the school's list of graduates. And after researching, he reached out to the principal and told him that Albright had never earned a bachelor's degree. Everything, his degrees, his teaching certificate had been faked. What? Apparently, he had slipped into three different offices at East Texas State, grabbed all the necessary forms, copied them, added his name, forged signatures, and then sneaked them back into the files. He even stole the registrar's typewriter so the typeface on the records would look the same. <gasps> he would have gotten away with it all if that administrator because when they report back that he's a graduate student he's like no you're not who is this guy so when they confronted him he just grinned and admitted to the crime he said he needed to bend the rules a little he explained in order to get a teaching job after he was kicked out of for being caught down at the train station full of suitcases wait let me read it again after he was kicked out For being caught down at the train station with suitcases full of stolen school property, including his own football coach's golf clubs. He didn't think he was ever going to get a second chance to prove how smart he is. Well, no. So by then, though, he had already married his college sweetheart, Betty, and she had given birth to their daughter. So he just didn't have time to begin all over again at the university whenever he got kicked out. So he thought, oh, I'll just fake everything. And sure enough, he got fucking hired as a teacher. 
But because the forgery was a victimless crime, and because he himself was such a nice, repentant fellow, the university decided to keep the transcript scandal out of the newspapers. He pled guilty to fraud charge and received a year's probation. <clears throat> so they, they decided not to pursue it. They just, quiet, hush-hush, mm-hmm. teacher left. So then we're into the 70s. As the 70s began, Albright was back to his old Dallas neighborhood with his wife and his daughter, living in a house not far from his parents. So once again, no one had any di- idea of what he had done in his past. The Charlie Albright that neighbors knew was the happy-go-lucky figure who could master anything, but somebody didn't care about settling down to a 9-5 job. So he did have some money from his parents, and his wife had a job as a high school English teacher. Oh, his would, wife did get yeah, married. Yeah, yeah. He was free to latch on to one project after another. He rarely had like a, a real job that he, that he settled down in. He just did whatever he wanted to, basically. It never lasted longer than three months, whatever he decided to do. Okay. He worked as a designer for a company that built airplanes. Oh. He worked as an illustrator for a patent company. He was a well-regarded car- carpenter. He collected wine bottles from the famous Il Sorrento Dallas restaurant in Dallas. Oh, he was, is that still around? I don't know. He was helping to start his own winery. He bought a lathe and made baseball bats. Wait. He was hoping to start his own winery, so he was collecting wine bottles to put his wine in? I don't know. Oh, okay. I guess so. He made baseball bats. bats. He collected old movie posters. He regularly went to the Venetian room at the Fairmont Hotel to get autographs from the stars performing there. The Fairmont just opened back up. Really? And mm-hmm. on a lark, he went to a Mexican border town and became a bullfighter. <laughs> the posters read, Senor Albright from Dallas. <laughs> the fuck? This guy, man. But he was white, white, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. After visiting a friend who worked at the beauty salon in a Sanger Harris department store. Remember Sanger Harris? Oh, yes, Albright promptly went off to beauty school, got his beautician's license, and then persuaded the salon to hire him with no experience as a stylist. He took to calling himself Mr. Charles and would spend at least an hour with each woman to get the hair exactly right. Mr. Charles. Mr. Charles. When he told his stylist friend that he was also an accomplished artist, the friend paid him $250 to paint a picture of his wife. Okay? And he was a good painter. He was self-taught. You know, he was a good artist. He had also won a prize at the Texas State Fair for his portrait of a dark-haired woman in a long green gown. So he worked for weeks on this woman's painting without Mm -hmm. finishing. He insisted that he needed to keep working on one special feature. Then he would tell his friend that it's the most difficult part of the painting. So his friend got tired of waiting, and he decided to go to Albright's house to look at the progress of the painting. They paid him $250, and this was in the 70s. That's a lot of money. So there in the living room, indeed, was the six-by-three-foot portrait. It was richly colored, remarkably realistic. The woman's hair, her mouth, her nose, her ears, her neck, everything was finished and beautiful, except for her eyes. In the center of the wife's face were two round white holes. After all this time, Albright hadn't even begun working on them. It was as something was holding him back, as if something was holding him back. As if he preferred the portrait to remain as it was, without eyes. So his friend said, Charles, when are you going to paint the eyes? <laughs> so creepy. And he said, well, when I'm ready to. So months later, he finally finished and painted the eyes. And then he did them again. He wanted to repaint them and do them again to get them just right, is what he said. 
He painted everything properly, the shadows, the eyelashes. He gave the eyelids just the right drop in the corners. He made it look so beautiful. And when he was finished, his friend couldn't believe how realistic the painting had turned out. It was, he realized, mesmerizing, especially the eyes. His, wife eyes were, his wife's eyes were so perfectly recreated that they seemed to follow a person across the room. Mm. Then, it was kind of quiet in his life until March of 1985. And then the incident occurred. So we take a break? We should take a break. Okay. Yes. Stay tuned. We'll be taking a break. 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 Welcome back. Welcome back. What was that? Um, yes, and I think we need to record our ad again because that one's old. Okay. You you did it for us, and it was such a good job. Yeah, but I was when I listened to our own podcast, I'm like, damn, I'm sick of listening to this ad. Okay, well, let's do it. <laughs> and we got to say, y'all come back now. You yes, yes, but not not today, another time. Um, anyway, thanks for um, tuning in. We are picking up on the story of Charles Albright, who was um, a serial killer in Dallas. So in March of 1985 was one of the first incidents. For the first time, Charles Albright's mask was slipping. On that day... I hate when my mask slips. (laughs) March 25th, to be specific. Specific. On that day, in a nearly empty Dallas courtroom, he stood before a judge and confessed to, quote, knowingly and intentionally engaging in deviant sexual intercourse with a girl under the age of 14. He was 51. The incident was kept very, very quiet. There would be no trial, no headlines. The DA had arranged for him to only serve probation for 10 years, which meant no jail time. He insisted he wasn't guilty, but he pled that way to avoid humiliation. He said he never touched the little girl. The girl's family was just looking for a scapegoat, and they picked him. He had first met the family in 1979 when he began singing in the St. Bernard's Catholic Church in East Dallas. People admired his voice. That's my hood. East Dallas. I listen to this shit. Soon he was acting as a Eucharistic minister, standing Wait. before the altar in a robe, reading Bible passages, helping with communion, almost like an assistant priest. Oh. He loved to help people, and everyone knew that. The Monsignor at St. Bernard's called him good old Charlie. <laughs> After he met the little girl's family, he bought them a big box of, sna- of steaks. He dressed up as Santa Claus and gave the girl and her siblings presents. Then one night, he snuck into her bedroom and molested her. Oh, no. The girl's parents tried to keep the matter quiet, especially at the church, because they did not want to stigmatize their daughter. They also wanted good old Charlie to pay. Charles worried that if he fought them, the story would leak. So that's why he went ahead and pled guilty and got their probation. In late, of ni- in late 1985, he fell in love with Dixie Austin. She was a pretty shy widow whom he had met on a trip to Arkansas. Dixie later said that sex with Charles was gentle and satisfying. He never talked dirty to her and never wanted her to do anything that might be considered unconventional. He certainly did not sneak off and have affairs. Well, that kind of sucks for her, doesn't it? Right? Well, she must have liked it. I don't know. It's kind of boring. A little vanilla. I know why nothing unconventional. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> By the time he met Dixie, however, he had already created another life for himself. 
Although he masterfully hid his secret from hid his secret head, <laughs> That's what she said. Uh-huh. from everyone who knew him, he was a veteran of red light districts all over Dallas. We in the red light district. Okay. The hairy hiney prostitutes. To some prostitutes, Harry Heine. Yeah, some Robert and I call it Harry Heine. Oh, shit. <laughs> Harry Hines. If you're not from Dallas, the street Harry Hines was known for prostitutes. If you went down Harry Hines, you would see them uh-huh. everywhere. Back now in the day. That's the place to go buy some discounted shit. Yeah. And there's a lot of liquor stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some really questionable strip clubs. Mm-hmm. Um... Anyway, but to some prostitutes, he was a whoremonger. He was a regular trick. To others, like Susan Peterson, he was even a sugar daddy. Like, we were asked if we wanted a sugar daddy. We were asked Gotham if, No, we were asked if we wanted to uh, be a sugar baby. Well, if we wanted to be a sugar baby, then that person was asking to be yeah, a sugar daddy. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. And, it, mm, no, I just wanted to talk. Mm. It was comical. Yeah. At Ranger Bail Bonds, the company she used to bail her out of jail, Susan Peterson listed Charles as her co-signer on bond applications. On one form, she listed him as her best friend in the event that she skipped town and the bondsman had a hunter down. There's also evidence that he was a friend of a woman named Mary Pratt long before she became a prostitute. In the early 80s, she lived in a South Dallas neighborhood where Albright's parents had rental property. So, these names are important, Mary Pratt and Susan Peterson. At the time, Charles was temporarily living in one of the rental homes, and according to several sources, he had a brief fling with one of Pratt's friends and brought the woman and Mary over to his house for parties. So, other prostitutes say that when Pratt started turning tricks at the star, Albright became one of her customers. Mary told them, Mary Pratt told them that old man Albright was a good trick. He was willing to pay a little more than the going rate. And soon he was making the rounds. With some of the girls, he had platonic relationships. He would pick them up, talk to them, take them to get a hamburger, drop them back off, never even attempting sex. With others, he had standing sexual appointments. Oh. Always in the afternoons when Dixie was at work as a sales clerk at... So he's still married. Yes, at a gift shop in Redbird Mall. Which is still up. Is it? Redbird Mall still. I didn't know it was. Okay. Yeah. Every Friday afternoon, for instance, he had sex with a married woman who hit the streets after her husband had gone to work and her children were at school. Albright, who Wait, sh- this woman was a prostitute and her husband was at yeah, work and her kids were at school. school? Yeah. Well, we can't do that shit now. <laughs> Don't fucking leave the house. What would she have done in COVID? <laughs> can you claim that on them? <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. So, she called him Pappy. She said that he felt sorry for her. He was a sweet gentleman. If I ever needed extra money, I would call him and he would drop it off. But the married woman said by late 1987, she had to put an end to all her dates with Albright because he began to get more and more aggressive. She said he asked her to beat him, to spank him like a child. Another prostitute, Edna Russell, remembered meeting Albright when her friend Susan Peterson asked her to do a double. She said she in double trouble. She said she wanted to have her sister wives. <laughs> so they had a threesome. Yeah. She said she and Peterson went with Albright into a motel room. There he handcuffed them to the bed and began hitting them with a belt and an extension cord, all the while shouting, oh, Scream, bitch, you know you like it. Oh. Hmm. Yes, yeah, this is like American Horror Story. When <laughs> he's looking at himself in the mirror, Patrick Bain. It's a good movie. Fucking crazy ass people, let me tell you right now. So then, um, not long after his life began to spin out of control after the death of his parents, 
without them around to look after him. He, um, sorry, a repressed part of Albright may have finally unleashed itself. So this is like when it, he got really worse. He, um, Dell died of cancer in 1981. That was his mom. <clears throat> they weren't that close in her last, uh, in her later years. <clears throat> she was disappointed in the way that her son had turned out. And while he found her to be a pest, especially when she would bang on his door early Saturday morning to get him up to help her, his final gesture of devotion for his mother was that he went out and bought a dress for the undertaker to put on her body. It was the first new dress she had ever seen. Well, he had ever seen her wear. Sorry, she didn't see it because she was dead. I just say <clears throat> He wept at her funeral, racked with grief or maybe guilt over the way he had let her down. He also cried at Fred's funeral, his dad, a few years later in 1986 after he had died from a heart attack. After Fred's fatal heart attack in 1986, Charles inherited at least $96,000 along with all of his parents' homes and property in South Dallas. He's an only child, right? Right. He was adopted. The only one. Right. At this point, Albright had made the decision to move back into the old family home in Oak, home in Oak Cliff, although the neighborhood had grown somewhat shabby over the years and the house was definitely in need of repair. Albright said the place would do nicely. He brought his new love, Dixie, down from Arkansas, and together they settled for a quiet, romantic life. The address of their home was 1035 El Dorado. Remember that. 1035 El Dorado. Okay. You're going to be quizzed later. 1035 El Dorado? Yeah, El Dorado. Why is my... Oh, no. Okay. Scare me. So, now we skip forward to October of 1990. Uh So, this was the autumn before he began killing. Okay. He was the model of domestic propriety. Propriety. During the day, he would put on, <clears throat> use his carpenter skills to u- around the house. God, I can't fucking talk. And well, selling. Welcome <laughs> to my world. Abortionist. And selling new <laughs> cabs. Abortionist. <laughs> Sorry. Squirrel. <clears throat> he would install new cabinets for the kitchen. He added a skylight to the bathroom. On October 1st, though, he did something that even for him seemed a little peculiar. He took a job delivering newspapers in the middle of the night for the Dallas Times-Herald. Albright told Dixie, who by now was his common-law wife, that he needed more spending money. He had never been good with his finances. In four years, he had already gone through his entire inheritance. Yeah, he went through his whole inheritance. Yes. (coughs) Excuse me, y'all. And he had to get a full-time job. Dixie got a monthly annuity check and worked daily in the gift shop, and she paid most of the bills. She wasn't exactly, you know, pleased with Charles's decision, but she said she couldn't get a good night's sleep without him with him gone. So, but it didn't matter. He said, "I want my money. I'm doing this." She didn't have a say. Um, he told her it would work out fine. He would wake up around three in the morning, deliver papers on the Oak Cliff route between four and six, and be back in bed by six fifteen. Why are you bougieing up all of our thank I'm you notes to our patrons? Our patrons. I'm gonna. Can I scribble some black shit on it too? Uh huh. Okay. Sorry, y'all. Mel, we are sending thank you notes to all of our patrons. That's our pride. Well, by the time they'll probably get them before this episode releases. That's true, that's true, that's true. And I did my appropriate black signature, and Mel is decorating it with fucking pastel shit. It's green. (laughs) My name's pastel. It says, thank you, Mel. And you did yours in black. Um, anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. So, Charles and Dixie agreed that most of the money that he would make would go for trips that he took with his softball team. 
He played for both a day team and a night team, and he was chosen as the outfielder for a local all-star team that went to the Senior World Series. He wore red shoes while everyone else wore black, uh-huh. and he twisted a coat hanger inside his cap so it would be perfect. So he just wanted to make sure he... Put a coat hanger in his Yeah, to make sure his hat would sit up on his head perfectly. Oh. He would always bring a cooler of soft drinks to every game for the other players to share. And how old is he now? Um, He's in his 50s. So he wanted to be liked. One of the people said that no one ever saw him upset. Like, he would go out of his way to be liked. Even if there was, like, words said between him and the other team, he would always be the one to back down. He didn't want to get into a fight. Except for one time that... uh, Hold on, I skipped too far ahead. Okay, Uh, he would back down. He literally couldn't stand the idea of fighting. He would rather give you a present. If every time he saw one of this guy's daughters, he would give her money as a present. He would just he he was one of those ones that didn't want to ever piss anybody off. Passive. Oh. Ones you can't fucking stand because they're not real with you. I know people like that. Because his former teammates were so fond of him, it's difficult them for them to talk about him in negative terms because they thought he was just this great guy. But they did recall one incident that um, some people say they didn't know anything about it. Others say they only heard about it secondhand. But at least two men have confirmed that this is they they witnessed it firsthand. At the end of one game, some players for the Richardson Greyhounds, which was Charlie's day team, were sitting around the ballpark shooting the breeze and eating candy. um, When two women in a car drove slowly by, after the men joked that the women must be prostitutes... (laughs) The team's manager shouted, Hey, Charlie, you're single. Why don't you take after them whores? And Albright said, Hell, I'd kill him if I could. Oh. Stunned, the men turned around towards their mild-mannered friend and on his face was a dark, scowling look. What do you mean, the manager said, trying to keep the conversation light. We've got to have whores. It keeps men from chasing married women. Wait, these these men. I swear to God, they think What the? Did they grab him by the pussy, too? (laughs) The hell it does, Albright snapped, and he marched off to his car and left. So, it was the first time anyone had ever seen him, like, show any type of anger, show this other side of him, because he's always this, you know, genial, very nice guy. And when the team assembled again for practice a few days later, the manager tried to apologize. We were just shooting the bull, he told Charles. And Charles said, well, that's a touchy subject with me. My mother was a prostitute. But he wasn't talking about Dell. He was talking about his birth mother. The other men were speechless. And the months during, and then later on during the investigation, after this came to light, uh-huh. investigation of his murders, the murders he did, a number of people tried to verify the story, including an FBI agent and private investigator working for his defense attorney. They learned that while his biological father couldn't be traced, his biological mother was a nurse who had lived and died in Wichita Falls. But there was no way that they could determine if she had ever been a prostitute. So, but for some reason, he associated, yeah, he associated um, prostitutes with his mother that gave him up for adoption for some fucking reason. So, then in December 1990 is when the first victim turned up in an undeveloped, almost forgotten lower class area of far south Dallas. Mm -hmm. She was naked except for a t-shirt and bra, and that had been pushed up over her breast. Her eyes were shut. Her face and chest were badly bruised. Apparently, the killer had beat her before shooting her in the head with a forty-four caliber pistol. 
Oh. A resident of the neighborhood was so horrified by what he saw that he rushed to his home and brought out a flowered bed sheet to cover her body. A police officer on the scene... As a normal person would do. Yeah, because... They don't want to look at a dead body. Yeah, then... Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. God. I would... I don't know what the fuck I'd do. A police officer on the scene immediately recognized the woman as Mary Pratt. Told you remember that name? Mm -hmm. Remember? She was 33, a veteran prostitute who worked at the Star Motel. She's a veteran prostitute at 33. At 33. (laughs) Oh, Okay. Guess you can retire early. <laughs> Benefits must be great. Pension, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> what order 401k is like. Um, so long. She was a prostitute who worked the Star Motel in Oak Cliff. It was not unusual for prostitutes in that area to get their share of beatings. Almost nightly, a girl would complain about being punched, kicked, even almost run over with cars. For a prostitute to be murdered, though, was unusual, especially when it happened to be somebody as well-liked as Mary. Mary wasn't one of the brazen hookers who stood in the street and flagged down cars. She rarely had any extra spending money and because the money she usually got went for drugs. She never bought sexy clothes. She was staying quietly on her corner. She wore blue jeans, tennis shoes, and t-shirts. Occasionally, at the end of the night, she would even ask one of her regulars to take her home to her parents' house in South Dallas. Mary's parents, who were an older retired people couple, never knew about her other life. She would call out good night as she climbed into bed and they would say good night and they would all go to bed. Right. So they never knew. So her file was given to Detective John Westphalen, mm-hmm. a homicide detective at the Dallas Police Department. Pratt's killing was dubbed a dumpster a dumped body case. It was one of the hardest types of murders to solve. She had obviously been killed in one location and dumped somewhere else. There were no witnesses, no murder weapon, little little forensic evidence, no fingerprints, no apparent, apparent motive. Considering the type of felonious characters who were always in that area, she could have been killed by just about anyone. So he and his partner just went down to the Dallas County Medical Examiner's office to watch her autopsy. Oh, they sorry, figured that sister wives. Fuck you. Nope. I have, I have a filter on. Sorry, Mel's trying to take a photo. I have to hide my face. I didn't hide my face, and I look like shit. Put a good filter on it. It is a good filter. Look, I have my church shirt on. It's a good filter. Okay, put it on. Take the picture. Do your. I thought you were doing your... I can't. I can't add the... Take the picture so I can uh, finish the story. <laughs> Okay. Your eyes. Sorry, guys. My <laughs> Sorry, eyebrow. Guys. Auto, uh, the eyebrow? I'm talking about no, my no. eyebrow? We're trying to get a picture, guys, if you're listening. And she closed her eyes. I closed my eyes? Okay. Sorry, everybody. Anyway, listen. Listen, Linda. I'm listening. So they went to the autopsy to watch the autopsy of Mary. They figured that they would not see anything unusual. They figured they'd find a, you know, gunshot wound and that's mm-hmm. it. So as the... Medical examiner begins the examination. She saw the needle tracks on her arms. She had a Playboy bunny tattoo on her chest and, of course, the bullet hole in her head. Then she opened Pratt's right eyelid and she opened the left. <gasps> and she said, my God, they're gone. Her eye, he's keeping her, her eyes. eyeballs were he kept them. gone. He yes. kept them. Yes. He is known as the Dallas eyeball killer. Oh, my God. There were no eyeballs, no tissue, nothing. Her eyes had been cut because out. He knew how to cut them out from And today. removed so carefully that her upper and lower eyelids were left undisturbed. 
the medical examiner was dumbfounded. This was not an operation that's taught in medical school. The killer had to know how to slip a knife around the eyes, making sure not to injure the adjoining skin, and then cut the six major muscles holding each eye, as well as the rope tough optical nerve. With the eyelids shut, it was impossible to tell that the eyes were missing. Oh so surely God. whoever did this had to have had a lot of practice on someone or something. What the? So the FBI, the detectives contacted the FBI's violent crime apprehensive, goddamn, violent crimes apprehension program unit. It's too many words. Ooh. They wanted to compare this crime to the data that is kept on the nation's most unusual depraved mutilations. So they keep a list. Bodies chopped up, organs removed, eyes punctured with a knife as a result of attack. But the FBI agent told them that they had found no listing anywhere of such a surgically precise cutting. Probably because that way you can see if there is serial killers, you know. Yeah, 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 if there's one operating with that type of MO. Right. So then in December of 1990, there's still no clue who killed Mary. Um, The police had not released any information about her missing eyeballs. Her death had only warranted a two-paragraph story in the back section of the paper because this was like, they don't always tell everything what's going on. Um, There were two officers, patrol officers, John Matthews and Regina Smith. They began their daytime shift on December 13th. It was just a few hours after Mary had been found, and they had not even heard of the crime. So they pulled the squad car up alongside a woman named Veronica Rodriguez, who was a known Dallas prostitute as well. She rolled, they rolled down the window, and they noticed that she had a nasty gash across her forehead and what looked like a thin knife cut across the front of her neck. Girl, what happened to you, they asked. Because, you know, these cops, they're on name basis with these hookers. They, right. they know them. And she said, don't arrest me. I almost got killed. It's like, please don't arrest me. <laughs> Poor girl. So she told the officers that the previous night she had been picked up by a trick, driven a long way south to a field, and raped. The man, who was a white man, she said, then tried to kill her, but she escaped and ran towards a house. The man at the house just happened to be somebody that she knew, and she said he also just happened to know the man who was trying to kill her. But this girl was kind of known for telling stories, so they didn't know if she was telling the truth or not. So they're like, mm, I don't know. So, um... Two days later, on an afternoon drive, they saw her again, and she was sitting in, with a balding middle-aged man in the cab of an 18-wheeler. So, they went to one side to talk to her and take her to the squad car for solicitation right. and prostitution, and the guy, the other officer went to the other side to talk to the man. She asked for his driver's license, which he produced, and his name was Axton Schindler, with the address of 1035 El Dorado. Oh. When they ran his name through the computer, he came up clean. And they, um, and suddenly Veronica Rodriguez started shouting, don't arrest him, don't arrest him. That's the man who saved me from the killer. That's him. So they looked at the address again and was like, okay, 1035 Eldorado. That's not, that's out of South Dallas. Well, where her attack took place, it was in an Oak Cliff neighborhood, just a five minute drive from the star. The man was a nervous guy who spoke fast, said he had no idea what she was talking about. He had only know, he had known her for years, but she was he was just giving her a ride. He basically said, I have no idea what the fuck she's talking about. Right. And he didn't protect her, but she was like, no, that's the guy who protected me. But he was, and they figured, okay, maybe she's lying yet again because she's a known liar. 
So they took her to jail for prostitution and wrote him a tick to, and took him in for unpaid tickets. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the end of that story. <clears throat> Jump forward to February of 1991. The second victim was found on a Sunday morning on the same South Dallas road where Mary Pratt was dumped. Like Pratt, she was mostly naked. Like Pratt, she was a prostitute. And she was, <clears throat> her name was Susan Peterson, and she was 27. God, she's... Susan Peterson. She's young, too. Yeah. She had been shot in the head, chest, and stomach, and her eyelids were closed. Because her body was found on the other end of the road, just outside city limits, the jurisdiction was Dallas County Sheriff's Department, so not the same detectives. So a different detective who had not heard about the Pratt killing was called to the scene, Similar thing happened, took her to the autopsy. When the pathologist began the standard external examination, the pathologist opened one eyelid, then the so other. Mm-hmm. He motions for Oliver to come closer and is like, she has no eyes. They've been ex- expertly cut out. So when the pathologist mentioned that the Dallas Police Department had had a similar case just two months earlier, they did some checking, and with 24 hours, he traveled to the police department to visit those detectives. They said, okay. We've got a repeater. They didn't want to use the word serial killer. The, the detective West Fallon kept saying it's a repeater. repeater. Yeah. Mm. So everyone knew what they were hunting for, though. Some crazy guy who could expertly cut out eyeballs. But again, they kept the information about the eyes um, secret. So at that point in time, there was like some controversy on what to do with the story. Right. Some of the detectives said they didn't want to tell anybody about it, nothing about the hotel or anything because then once the killer finds out he's going to change go somewhere else they'll lose the track then other people believe that well we need to protect people even if it's prostitutes we need to warn them so that more people aren't killed um so there was really nothing else to do so they did go ahead and, and tell the story and let people know there was flyers posted around the star the hotel um asking prostitutes to stay off the streets Detectives met with the press to discuss the two killings. Did they file an employment? <laughs> <laughs> they get extra $600 a week. Although no information was officially divulged about the eyes, word quickly leaked to reporters that the women's faces, the women's faces had been strangely mutilated. They didn't know what, though. The guy was almost surgical in the way he did it, one detective told a reporter. To the police department dismay, the media frenzy ensued. The prostitute murders sent the city's imagination into overdrive. Calls came in from reporters all over the country. Mm. So as these two officers, John Matthews and Regina Smith, sat in their squad car reading this information on the front page of the newspaper, they they were pretty shaken up. They didn't know what to do because they did know about this woman who said that you know she had almost right. killed. Um, they did talk to the prostitutes and ask them, you know, y'all, you need to stay, to get off the streets. Right. But the prostitutes, so they pulled up to, sorry guys, I'm losing my track. They pulled up to the hotel and all the prostitutes had holed up inside and they all came out. And they surrounded the squad car, squad car and began to pass on their own personal list of suspects. They would talk about the men that were too kinky, they wanted to tie them right. up and whip them. Um, and of course... Officer Smith would make her usual impassioned plea, girls, get off the street. There's other things you can do. But the black prostitutes weren't buying it because the women, the two women that were killed, were white. Uh, so they they actually saw it as an opportunity for them to, to make money. more money because the white girls are too scared to go onto the streets. Uh-huh. Then there was that story with Veronica Rodriguez, and she had been telling a lot of people her story, as well as other officers, reporters, 
um, everything about you know her being attacked. Right. At first, she also said she witnessed Mary being shot, but so this is again why they didn't know if they could believe her or not about what had happened. She um, exaggerates everything. Yes, yeah, yeah. So and then the story was that she said her attacker was white. Then she said he was Hispanic. Then she said he might be black. Um, the, everyone who talked she to her, like a no. Yeah, everyone who talked to her said she was just she was on drugs. Obviously. So, but what bothered the officers was that she never changed her basic story about being attacked. She changed some of the, you know, the details of, you know, what the guy was, but what happened with the attack, she never changed that. Yeah. Um, So, in March of 1991, the detective John Westphalen, Westphalen, had filled up, by then, four black spiral notebooks with notes on the prostitute murder case. He had gone back and re-examined the crime scenes. Special undercover units had been sent to stake out the prostitution areas to run license plates to see if the owners might have any unusual criminal records. Everything added up to nothing. So this killer was in total control. It was a man who was holding, you know, all the keys to everything. So he would say, we've got to answer three questions. Number one, why is he after prostitutes? Number two, why were both bodies dumped in the same street? And three, why are the eyes cut out? We know why the Right, we know. <clears throat> so, suddenly in the early morning hours of March 19th, the killer changed tactics because mm. the story was leaked. On Fort Worth Boulevard, another known prostitute hangout a few miles from the star, a black prostitute named Shirley Williams emerged from the Avalon Motel where she worked as a maid during the day and turned tricks at night. According to another prostitute who saw her, she was wearing jeans and a yellow raincoat and appeared to be high. As she toddled down the street, she was found at twenty. She had a yellow raincoat on. Yeah, oh. I don't know, Georgie. She was found at six twenty the next morning, dumped on a residential street half a block from an elementary school in the heart of Oak Cliff. As children walked to school, they could see the naked woman crumpled against the curb. Mm-hmm. An unopened condom was beside her body. Once detectives and the medical examiner arrived on the scene, Detective Westphalen said to the medical examiner, "Go look at her eyes and tell me if they're there." So he didn't even wait till the, she got to the autopsy room. He said, go look now and tell me she's there. The field agent flipped open the eyelids and said, they're gone. And that's when they knew they had number three. So now they got a serial killer. The autopsy on Shirley Williams' body would show that the surgery had been hurried. The broken tip of an X-Acto blade was found embedded in the skin near her right eye. But there were still no witnesses, no weapon, no fingerprints. And worse now, the killer had now murdered a black woman and he had moved locations. So just as the detective feared, the publicity about the case sent her sent the killer going Elsewhere. somewhere else. Yeah, and so there's no telling where that he would hit again. Now he's, you know. And now that he's hitting every room. Yeah, there's no telling. So March 22nd, 1991. Once word of Shirley Williams' killing spread, the Star Motel turned into a ghost town. Yeah. Some prostitutes, black and white, told officers John Matthews and Regina Smith that they were leaving Dallas. Others said they were getting out of the business. A few women were so desperate for drug money they couldn't leave, so they moved together to a street corner next to the home of a man who promised to serve as their lookout. <laughs> Stick together, man. Oh. So cruising the area, the officers noticed a black prostitute by the name of Brenda White. That's mm-hmm. funny. That's my, my aunt's maiden it name. Is. <laughs> it is. I saw that name. Like, oh wait, it's a black. Because I thought my aunt was kind of crazy back in the day. <laughs> but they said she's a black prostitute. So whew, wasn't it? Wasn't ain't Brenda? <laughs> <laughs> she, she was a 17-year veteran of the neighborhood. She did run South Dallas, too. My aunt was crazy. 
Um, she tended to work alone on the street corner in front of a church away from other prostitutes. The officers decided to stop and make sure she knew about the murders. Girl, Smith said, don't you know there's a killer loose? And now he's killing black girls too? She said, well, I'm going to get my black ass out of here then. <laughs> she said, I just had to mace a man who jumped me the other night. So while the officers that a few days before, hold on, she, White told the officers that a few days before, a trick in a dark station wagon had pulled up alongside her and she had gotten in the car. She said he was a husky-looking white man with salt and pepper hair, cowboy boots, and blue jeans. Oh. Let's go to a motel, she said. No, he said. I've got a spot we can use. As a way to protect herself, though, she never allowed anyone to take her anywhere but to a motel. So she told him, Tim, let me out right now. No. Suddenly, she said, a change came over his face. It was like anger, rage. He said, I hate whores. I'm going to kill all you motherfucking whores. Before he had a chance to grab her, she shot a stream of mace into his face, threw open the door, and jumped out. She made sure to note that she broke the heel of one of her favorite red leather pumps in the process. Had to break her shoes. So Red leather pumps on top of that. pumps, right? So the next morning, as the officers were checking in for work, you know, this story that she told them made them start thinking. And Officer Smith said, you know what? We really need to run a check on this Action Schindler. That was the one that Veronica had said saved her from the killer. Um, and they decided to go ahead and go downtown to the Dallas County's Cosville office yeah, because you can't just you can't just open your laptop and do it back then. <laughs> so there, a deputy constable was on duty, and Walter his name is Walter Cook, and he agreed to help them. So they're all sitting around the the terminal. They typed in Schindler's address, one zero three five El Dorado, and the name Fred Albright popped up as the owner. Oh, it turned out that this Fred Albright also owned property on a street called Cotton Valley. And it was the very neighborhood in South Dallas where the first two prostitutes were found. Oh. But Fred Albright was dead. Matthews and Smith stared at the screen. The only clue in the case led them to a dead man. Then after a pause, the fucking clerk guy said, Maybe this has something to do with a man named Charles Albright. What the hell? Several weeks before... The, the clerk explained he had come into the office early one morning and had answered a call from a woman who would not identify herself. The woman had been friends with Mary Pratt, she said, and through Pratt, she had met a man whom she briefly dated. He was a very nice man, she said, but he had an odd love for eyes. She also happened to mention that he kept exacto blades in his attic, and the, the clerk asked her for the man's name, and she said Charles Albright. So it just so happened... That clerk on duty was the same one that she called and reported his name. If any other clerk had been on duty, he, he that connection wouldn't have been made and oh he probably God. had not been caught. Small world. Yes. So, the personal information, then they looked up Charles Albright's personal information and it showed address 1035 El Dorado. What the hell? So, they knew that Schindler and Albright were connected, but they didn't know exactly how. And what it, what it was really is that Schindler was renting the property from Albright. Oh. Um, so, then the two officers rushed to the detective to say, look, we've got some information. I think we've got the killer. Um, the officers, they looked up his criminal record. They discovered a string of thefts, burglaries, forgeries, and the charge of sexual intercourse with a child. The clerk then pulled out the mugshot. Yeah. The clerk then pulled out the mugshot of Albright. And it was a photo of a rather handsome, well-built man, well-built man with grayish hair, angular features, and deep-set eyes, just as Brenda White had described. 
So they took all this information and they tracked down Brenda White <clears throat> and asked her if she recognized any of the men in the mugshots. Basically brought her a lineup and said, do you remember, do you recognize any right. of these men? So unhesitatingly, she pointed to Albright's picture and said, that's the man that had attacked her. A little while later, they showed the same lineup to Veronica Rodriguez. And according to Matthews, when, Bron- when she got to the third picture, which is Albright's, she started shaking and trembling and she refused to identify anyone. She was scared. Mm-hmm. So they called the detective West Phelan with the news <clears throat> and said, you know, Rodriguez is so afraid she's not going to identify him. So we just got Brenda White saying that this is the man. Um, but they knew that they had to get Rodriguez mm-hmm. to identify him too, that he didn't have enough evidence just on that. That Brenda's story would offer like um, a misdemeanor assault, but if Rodriguez identified him, then they could file charges of attempted murder, get a search warrant, and right. go into his house. Get the eyeballs. Yes. Get the eyeballs. Where the fuck are the eyeballs? So Smith and Matthews brought her back downtown, and when the photos were laid out in front of her, she began to shake. But they were saying, look, if you don't help us, more women are going to die. Right. They explained to her Mm -hmm. the horrific murder that had happened, because not all the details were let out about how they were killed. And and they told her, you know, basically, this is easy. And then she realizes how fucking lucky she is. She has eyeballs. They said, just pick out the picture of the guy. We'll get him. We'll put him in jail, and he can't hurt you. So then she finally picked his picture and turned it over and signed her name. So at 2.30 in the morning on March 22nd, the police burst through the front door of 1035 El Dorado. Despite the home's shabby interior, the treasures of Charles Albright's eclectic life decorated room after room. One cabinet was filled with exotic champagne glasses. Another held delicate, expensive figurines of pretty young women. On one wall were Life magazine covers and valuable Marilyn Monroe movie posters. He was handcuffed and led away. And he's still married and living with his wife. uh He never said a word, and Dixie just broke down and started crying and screaming. She had no idea about anything. Oh, my God. So... Talk now he was arrested and now because they've probably on. been married now 30 years uh-huh. yeah moving on to his conviction a lot of people didn't know if they actually had enough evidence to convict him um he never confessed to anything he asked that he acted as if he had never heard of any of the women they searched through every square into the south dallas properties all the properties that he owned he searched they searched his oak cliff house six times the FBI even brought in a high-tech machine that could see through walls. Although the searches produced an array of interesting items like carpenters, woodworking blades, mm-hmm. exacto blades, copy of Grey's Anatomy, dozens of true crime books, they never came up with the eyeballs. What? Behind Charlie's hand-built fireplace mantle, police discovered a hidden compartment filled with pistols and rifles. <gasps> I know where the eyeballs are. Oh, my God. Okay, keep going. They were never found. Are they not in that painting of that lady? No, they were never found. And that was before. That was oh, before, yeah. I'm thinking, <gasps> that would be fucking okay. creepy, though. Eyeballs in the picture. Oh, or in one of his taxidermy animals. <laughs> oh. Um, nothing turned out to be the murder weapon. So, unfortunately, the case was incredibly circumstantial. There's a criminal minds that the guy is a taxidermist it? and he kills women. I wonder if it's based on this. And takes their eyeballs. Uh, it's probably based on this. Um... No, he never admitted to seeing the women on the night they were killed. Dixie claimed that on the nights that he, in question, Charlie didn't leave the house for his paper out, and he always came home. As the trial date arrived, Veronica Rodriguez actually decided not to testify against him. She claimed that actually they had never been together. She was scared. She was scared, yeah. Um, but 
Toby Shook. That was his name. He was a low-key 33-year-old prosecutor working for the Dallas County's District Attorney's Office. He had a trump card. For the first time in history, the DA office was going to, for a murder conviction based solely on controversial hair evidence. Days after Albright's arrest, the city's forensic lab reported that the hairs found on the bodies of the prostitutes were similar to hair samples taken from him, from his head and pubic area. As evidence goes, hair isn't that conclusive, right. but it's impossible. Yeah. God, my, I mean, I don't know about you, but I could be walking down the street and my, my hair, hair goes falls out everywhere. Right. <clears throat> but they did say that in this case, the lab kept running tests. The technician said that the hairs found on the blankets in the back of Albright's truck were similar to the hair samples from the first two prostitutes, and the hairs found in his vacuum cleaner matched the hairs from the prostitutes. So his hair, hair that matched him was found on them. And hair that matched them were found in his vacuum cleaner. Oh. So that's what they based the case on. He never testified. He sat in the seat, slumped over, all looking poor me. Um, he just sat there in his chair. On December 19th, though, the jury returned with a guilty verdict and a life sentence. And Dixie collapsed in the courtroom. He only got a life sentence. Yes. And he's currently incarcerated in the John Montford Psychiatric Unit in Lubbock, Texas. He's in prison, still, he works he's still as a, alive. Yes, he works as a carpenter, reads books on the Civil War, coaches softball, and writes letters to Dixie. Oh, okay. So that is Charles Albright, the Dallas Eyeball Killer. He's and so tell me uh, why then does Dallas have a gigantic eyeball in downtown? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about that. I will never be able to see that eyeball again. <laughs> oh my god, the Dallas eyeball killer? Yes. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And he still says he never, he didn't, so they don't They know. do have a giant eyeball down there, and then when yeah. you go up all the protests and stuff that happened, they put, someone put on, spray painted on it, it says, I see you, or <laughs> well, yeah, do you see yeah. us, or something, you know, mm-hmm. during the protest, I remember seeing red paint. That's that like, that eyeball's creepy though. Yes. It's like in the middle of a park. Like, there's no reason for it to be there. Yeah, no. It's like, who's watching me? Right? So, yeah, he never confessed. He still says he had nothing to do with it. Yeah. That's crazy. Took their eyeballs. They never found the eyeballs? Never found the eyeballs. Maybe he ate them. (gasps) Maybe he cooked them in soup. Trying to be frugal like his mother. Maybe he couldn't afford them. Yeah, because he couldn't afford grocery bills like my serial killer. <laughs> Saving on the grocery bills, oh, cooking the God. ass, the lard from the ass. No. Oh, guys, it's uh, 922. We've been recording for a few hours. Yeah. So thanks no for tired. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. It was a fun time. It was a fun time. For a good time, call Cough and Bougie Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't call me. <laughs> Oh, my God. Guys, send us your your um, stories. We want to hear all kinds of stories, whether they're paranormal, true crime. Demon possession. Killer, demon possession. Anything. We just want to be able to read listener stories because we find that stuff just as fascinating. I know there's somebody in our listeners that probably knows a murderer. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Anyway. I'm sure. So, you can, guys can um, DM us on Instagram, Facebook, or you can send us an email to gothambougiepodcast at gmail.com. And then make sure you definitely go and follow us, find us, like our stuff on um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And we also need you guys to leave us uh, reviews. Reviews. Yes. 
And also, we need you to join as a patron because um, we need it. We need it because we really want to get equipment, and it's about two thousand dollars for the equipment. Yeah, and we would we like we're making cards to send to our patrons. Yeah, but okay, if you guys do choose to sign up as a patron, just be aware that you get charged on the day that you sign up, and then they will also charge you on the first day of the next month and every month thereafter. So wait till the yeah. first of the month. So don't don't sign up on the 23rd cuz you're going to get hit that day and also 7 days later. Yes. So time it well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So time it well so you guys um can be patrons. Yeah. And the next time we record, we're actually going to go live. We are going to go for live. our patrons only. We are. And we'll probably do it still from our Facebook groups cuz I don't know how to do the YouTube thing yet. <laughs> well, yeah. Maybe we'll figure it out there. We're sorry it, if you have visited our YouTube channel and it is empty yeah we're working on it guys this is all new to us and we work full time and I just haven't had time life has happened and you know so but we are sending you guys that are patrons a special little surprise so hopefully you'll have it by the time this episode comes out yep I hope so all right guys I guess that's it for episode y'all stay safe wear your fucking masks yes if Halloween gets canceled, I'm going to kill everybody. Yeah, I'll help. Okay, that's all. Okay. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Yes. Have a great night. Talk to you later. Y'all come, come back, back now. now. You, you hear? hear?